Well, good morning, guys. Welcome to those who might be joining us online. I love Baptism Sundays around here. It's a time where we get to celebrate uh, these steps that people are taking, where they make these public proclamations of their faith in Christ, where they are declaring the work that the gospel has done in their lives. And what we've been talking about over these last few weeks is Paul's explanation of what the gospel is, the good news of what God has done in us and for us. So we're going to continue in. We'll be in Romans chapter 3. If you want to go ahead and turn your Bibles there, we'll get there in just a few minutes. But when I was in ninth grade, uh, I had a science teacher by the name of Mr. Tackett. And Mr. Tackett loved teaching science. He did not want any distractions. And he had one very, very simple rule. If I catch you chewing gum in my class, then you get a day of lunch d-hall with me. Very simple. Well, I decided that I was going to test my luck. And it turns out Mr. Tackett has some really keen vision, and he quickly caught me, and he calmly said, Mr. Cobb, you can spit out your gum, and you can join me in the shop for lunch today. Well, a little bit of embarrassment, a whole lot of pride kicked in. I'm like, no, I think I can talk myself out of this. And every time I tried to argue, Mr. Tackett put another tick mark beside of my name and said, Chad, you just doubled it. You want to try for some more? I'm like, sure, why not? And I thought for sure I could talk myself out of this, And I think I still have the record at Andrew Jackson Middle School. I spent 32 straight days (laughs) in lunch D-Hall with Mr. Tackett in the shop. And I think that's when I determined that maybe a future in law was not in my future at that point. And I was like, I think I'll just do engineering instead. So that got me thinking. What if God kept a notebook, and every time we broke one of his rules, he put a ticking mark beside of our name? All of us are guilty of pushing our luck with God. All of us are guilty of thumbing our nose at what God says is right and true and good, and we pursue our own desires instead of his. So the question becomes, is God noticing? Is God making note of those times when we break his standards, when I exaggerate the truth, when I tell a lie so people will think better of me, when I speak harshly to someone, when I refuse to forgive somebody, when... When I am stingy with the resources that God has given me, I'm not generous in meeting the needs of the people around me. Does God notice? I don't think that there's a more important question to wrestle with as a human being. If there's a notebook and there is a mark beside your name for every time that you went your own way instead of God's, how does your page look? And what does God do with that? Another way of asking the same question is, what is the standard for getting into heaven? I think most people assume that a person needs to be good. If there is a good God, then he would let good people into his good heaven. So most people just run through life with this assumption. I just need to be good. I need to be moral. I need to be honest, be kind. I need to pray the rosary. I need to go to church. I need to stay sober. But that begins a very nagging question of how good is good enough? Nobody's perfect, right? Whatever standard of goodness that you have in your mind, you know yourself that you don't meet that standard every time. Eventually, you're going to fall short. So what's the passing grade? Is it 75% of the time? Does God grade on the curve? I mean, if I shoot and I I hit 74% instead of 75%, do do I get in or not? And how will I know how I'm doing? How will I know what my current grade is? Most world religions arrive at a very similar explanation of life. There is a God. He has standards to live by. They're really hard to keep. So good luck. We'll see you on the other side. Maybe. 
So last week, Andy ripped the Band-Aid off and showed us how grim of a picture that we face. But for two chapters, Paul tries to get us all on the same page. And he says, the standard that God holds for entering into heaven is not good. It's 100% perfection. And no one gets there. This is how Paul concludes his argument at the very end of uh, Romans 3.20. He says, therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. Paul says that we are all in the same boat, that, that we all have this universal problem. And the term that he uses is the word sin. And the Greek word for sin is actually an archery term, and it means to simply miss the mark. If an archer shot an arrow and did not hit a bullseye, he would say that his arrow sinned, that it fell short, it missed the mark. And Paul says that this is what sin does in our lives, that we all miss the mark of God's perfect standard for being in a relationship with him. And as a result of that, we see some of the consequences of sin in our lives. If you're taking notes, one of the things that we see in our lives is sin separates us from ourselves. That it separates us from the man or the woman that God made us to be. I, I don't have to look at anyone else to see the effects of sin in this world. I can just look at my life and what I'm prone to do, my thoughts, my desires, my, my track record for doing whatever I wanted to do and, and realize that I don't even live up to my own standards, much less God's. Sin has this way of, of twisting inside of us to where we end up doing things that we never would have imagined that we would have ever done. It's why we walk around with guilt and shame. It's why it's so hard to find contentment in life and joy in life. It's why when we're alone, we don't like the person that we're with. That instead of having self-worth, we walk around with like the self-loathing in our lives. Something is broken, and sin has separated us from who God made us to be, but sin also separates us from others. As we look at, at the most important relationships in our lives, we, we find at times that there are conflict. Why are there conflicts with our friends? Why is there conflict inside of our marriage? Why is it not as sweet as it should be? It's because of the battle that's within us, that sin separates us from those relationships. It's because of my arrogance or my pride or my selfishness. It, it's me keeping score of when someone wronged me so that maybe in the future I can use it against them. Sin has a way of destroying and distorting the relationships that are meant to bring so much joy in our lives. And then lastly, but most importantly, sin separates us from God that we all recognize that, that there is a gap between where we are and what God's standard is to be in a relationship with him. And you can't do enough good to bridge that gap. Paul says that the purpose of God's law is not for us to climb up to him, but it's to convict us of all that we've done wrong and to show us just how far from God we really are. And our sin has now made us guilty before God. And no amount of good works can repair the past. Even if theoretically you could live a perfect life from this day forward, you can't undo what you've already done. You can't unsay what you've already said. There's not a way to repair the damage of the past. And for two chapters, Paul has just beat us over the head time and time again with this bad news 
So how does God deal with us? What do we do with this bad news? And with two words, Paul is finally going to let us take a breath of air. And it has been said that this paragraph that we're going to look at this morning is the most important paragraph found in all of Scripture. It is the summit of your Bible because it is the essence of the gospel and it is the simplest explanation of what Christ did to fix this universal problem that we all have. So Paul's going to pick up in verse uh, 21. He says, but now, I've spent the last two pages, these last two chapters telling you the bad news, but now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. If you have your Bibles out, you can circle, underline, put a star, exclamation point beside, but now. Paul is finally going to give us some good news on how this gap between us and God is bridged. And he starts off by talking about the righteousness of God. I think it's a really important thing for us to understand the righteousness of God. It means that God is absolutely right, that he is totally fair, that, that he is completely just, and he is totally full of integrity. He will always do the right thing. Some people have a view of God that he has taken on this role of a sweet old grandpa who sees our sin, sees our rebellion, and just says, you know, boys will be boys. Well, let's just pretend like that didn't happen. That would be really nice, but to reach that kind of conclusion, you have to take some scissors to your Bible and cut out some really prominent passages. And you have to create in your mind a God that does not have the characteristic of justice because a just God must punish rebellion. I mean, think about it in your own life. And when we see wrong, there is something that wells up within us that says that wrong needs to be punished. How much more would a good and holy and righteous God feel that same thing? He will not wink at sin. He, he will not compromise on his standards because by his very nature, he cannot. He is a just and righteous God. So on, on one hand, we have this attribute of God that he's righteous and just and that on the other hand scripture speaks time and time again of God's graciousness of his grace and his mercy so we have these two seemingly opposing attributes of God and I think one of the things that we fail to understand is the dilemma that faced a holy God that wanted sinful people in heaven his justice and his grace seem to be at odds and I think a lot of people realize that God is holy and that he's righteous, but they believe somehow that his grace will trump his justice, that somehow God just hides his justice behind his back and says, hey, everybody, just come on in. But God is just. He must punish sin. So that'll make toast of everyone. That's a possibility. But, but now no one is in heaven. No one is in his presence. He'll be just, but he won't be merciful. So how can a perfectly just and righteous God let sinful people into heaven and not compromise who he is? This conflict, this dilemma is at the root of the Christian gospel. And it is what Paul is going to try to unpack for us in just these next few verses. And what we're going to see in these next few verses is just the genius of God. The, the answer 
to the dilemma that God faced can be summed up in the word salvation. We, we needed rescued from our current circumstance, our current condition. And Paul is going to use four terms to describe what salvation means in our lives. And these are very technical, very theological terms, but it's very important for us to understand them because these terms form the language of grace. These words are the language of salvation. So Paul picks up in verse 23. He says, there's no difference between Jew and Gentile for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and all are justified freely by his grace. So Paul says, if we're gonna understand how it is that a holy God can allow guilty rebels into heaven, then we need to understand this word justification. If you're taking notes, justification gives us some language that tells us that we've gone from guilty to acquitted. Justification is a term that was borrowed out of the legal system, out of the courtroom, to describe the legal status of a defendant before a judge. And it literally means to declare not guilty, to declare acquitted, to, to be made right. And it is, it's beyond a simple pardon. It, it does not mean that God has just turned his head the other way and act like it didn't happen. And, and it doesn't simply mean that he forgives because forgiveness has with it this idea that, that you're guilty, but that you have been released from your penalty. Justification is much more than that. One person put it this way, that the word justified means justified never sinned. For a man to be in heaven, he must be justified. It, it is a picture of standing in a courtroom before a just God who knows the facts of your life, who knows everything that you've ever done, who knows the requirements of the law and declares this person has done nothing wrong. He's lived according to the law. More than forgiven, this person is acquitted. This person is not guilty. But that begs the question, how can God remain righteous? How can he maintain a perfect record of being just and always doing what is right and yet still declare guilty people innocent? The answer to that question is found at the cross where God has devised a plan to pay the penalty that we owe and allow him to declare us not guilty. Now, to understand what God accomplished on the cross, we need two more words. We need the word atonement and the word redemption. Paul goes on in verse 24. He says, all are, all are justified freely by his, by his grace through the redemption of that came by Christ Jesus. And, and this term, redemption, is borrowed from the marketplace. It, it was a, a word that was used in the slave trade, the slave market, to buy back a slave. If you're taking notes, redemption gives us this language that we have gone from slavery to freedom. Uh, the slave market in that day was a very common scene. In that agricultural society, it, it only took one bad harvest for a farmer to, to end up falling into debt and to, to losing their land and to become completely impoverished. And the only way to avoid a debtor's prison was to become an indentured servant where, where a wealthy person would come and pay off a person's debt and in exchange for that, the person would become a slave, become an indentured servant to them to pay back the debt that that wealthy person paid for them. And if someone were unimaginably kind, he could purchase a slave at the market 
and then set them free. And the word that would be used to describe that is that they would be redeemed. That they would be redeemed from all debt and from any slavery. And what Scripture points to time and again is that all of us have been enslaved to sin by virtue of the moral debt that we owe to God. Through our sinful actions, we have accumulated this humongous debt before God, and the law of God demands payment in order for us to be declared righteous. We need a redeemer. We, we need someone to come and pay the debt that we owe, and according to the gospel, Jesus paid that debt in full on the cross. So if we want to know how God can justify us, it is because that he can redeem us. If we want to know how God can declare guilty people acquitted, it is because he paid the cross. He paid the penalty. He paid the debt, the full debt at the cross. And to understand the price that was paid, we need one more word. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. To understand the price that Jesus paid for us, that, that allowed God to pay the penalty for us, we need that word re- atonement or propitiation. Atonement means from wrath to mercy. It's a religious term, and it's actually, uh, we, we see it play out in Leviticus 16. Uh, back in the Old Testament, the Jewish people had this one day a year, this day of atonement. And on that day, the high priest would go out and he would take two goats. One of those goats he would bring into the temple and it would be offered as a sacrifice, a sin offering, representing that somebody or something had to give their life for the sins of the whole nation. And then the second goat was referred to as the scapegoat. And the priest would place his hands on and he would pronounce all of the sins of the entire nation for the previous year. And and he would take this goat out into the wilderness and let it go representing the fact that, that their sins had been forgotten, that, that their guilt was removed. And that's a picture of what Jesus fulfilled on the cross. The sins of the entire human race were laid on his head. And Jesus became the greatest murderer, the greatest adulterer, the greatest thief, the greatest rebel who ever lived. He became the husband who neglected his family. He became the drug addict. He became the hypocrite who lived two different ways. He became the liar, the proud, the selfish. He became all of those. And when he died for them, he died for them so I can now be innocent of those charges. Here's the genius of God. He, He found a way to punish the sin but preserve the sinner. God created this plan, this beautiful plan of substitution. Jesus received all the rebellion that we did. He received our rebellious lives, and the wrath of God was poured out on his son so that it would never have to be poured out on us. Our sins are forgiven, and our guilt is removed. God said, I'll credit to you my righteousness as a free gift. I'll take your sin. I'll punish it on the cross. Let you escape. You you take my perfection. You come into heaven like you've 
always kept the law. I'm still just, and you're justified. And what did you and I do in all of that? Nothing. That is salvation. Man didn't think of it. Man didn't do it. God did everything. That is the greatest thought that has ever been thought. And now we stand justified before a righteous God. That is the genius of God. So God has done all of this. How do we receive this gift of salvation into our lives. And Paul says it comes down to the word faith. It says God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. And, and sometimes people have this misunderstanding of what faith is. They think faith is some kind of emotional response. But a better way of understanding faith or the, the, the true way of understanding faith is faith is going from self-confidence to confidence in Christ. Saving faith is, a, is confidence in a person. You put your trust in what somebody else did. That, that's why we have spent so much time talking about what it was that Jesus did on the cross. Faith is hearing what Jesus did for you and then believing that it's true. And you understand that your goodness is not what's going to get you to God. And you start transferring, you, you transfer your hope. You transfer all of your trust from your goodness to his perfection. And it's a recognition that you need forgiveness and that God through Jesus has done something that you could never do. And now I have confidence that Jesus has atoned for my sin, that, that whatever God had against me, he has taken out on his son. That I know I can have confidence that Jesus has redeemed me from my sin, that, that he has paid my debt in full and has set me free to live a new life. And it is faith in the work of Christ that God sees and says, by that faith, you are now declared justified, not guilty, welcomed in my presence. So how do we respond to that? For those of us that, that have been walking alongside Jesus and following him for a number of years, I, my hope for us is that this is a reminder of just how much grace and mercy and forgiveness has been extended our way. And I, I pray that it would be a, a fresh appreciation, uh, a fresh gratitude, a sense of awe of the extent that a holy God had to go to to bend in our direction, to, to bridge a gap that we could never bridge on our own. And may we remember that the forgiveness and the mercy and the grace that we've experienced in our lives is meant to be passed along to others. When I see a believer who doesn't have mercy, who refuses to forgive others, who doesn't extend uh, mercy or grace to others, my first thought is I, they've forgotten what God has done for them. Because we will give grace proportionally to, my, to how much we remember and how much we have received God's grace in our lives. So I pray that hearing afresh this gospel message changes something on the inside of us, that we can live in response to the goodness and the grace of God and begin to extend that more frequently to others. But for those of you that are sitting here and maybe watching online, you say, Chad, I've never done that. I've had this vague belief in God 
or a vague belief that there is a man Jesus, but I, I've never gotten to a place where I have brought my sin debt and laid it down. I've never placed my faith in Christ so that I could be made right, so that I could be declared righteous and justified in front of God. If that's you, I, I wanna close with a prayer, and this is just between you and God. But it's, it's this idea that this is a free gift that's offered by God and by faith, by believing that God did this for you, that you can have new life, that you, you don't earn it, you just receive it. So all of us, let's close our eyes in prayer this morning. God, thank you for bringing us here today. God, thank you for bringing me here today. I needed to hear this. You know that I've done a lot of wrong things in my life. I've not lived my life chasing after you, and I'm sorry. Today I realize that you know all that I've ever done, and yet you still love me, and you want to bring me back into a relationship with you. I, I thank you for sending Jesus to pay the debt that I owe. I accept that. And God, I ask that you make me new again. I, I willingly allow you to redeem me and to set me free. Thank you for the new life that you are providing me. Teach me how to follow you. C continue to show me just how much you love me so that I can love you in return. God, thank you for what you did in spite of who we are. It's in Jesus' powerful name we pray. Amen.